Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest today is Sarah Vaughan, talking about her novel, Reputation. We'll also hear from comedian Faye Brown on her debut novel, Tinker Taylor, School Mum Spy. And Stephen Games talks about editing and publishing Brian Verity's memoir, Why My Wife Had to Die. Sarah, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but welcome again to Bookmark. Oh, it's lovely to be back here. And we will be talking about your new novel, Reputation, which I enjoyed very much. But first of all, this is an exciting time for you, isn't it? Because a previous novel of yours, Anatomy of a Scandal, is just about to be launched on Netflix. It's amazing. It's it's dropping, as they as they term it, on um, April the 15th, which is Good Friday. It's been the most incredible experience. It's going to be a six-part series starring Sienna Miller, Rupert Friend and Michelle Dockery, Lady Mary and Downton Abbey. And it's been written by and produced by the team that created Big Little Lies and The Undoing and, and Nine Perfect Strangers. So I've been really lucky. I managed to go on set just at the very end of the third lockdown. And I have seen rough cuts of all six episodes. It made me cry. It looks really sumptuous. Hopefully it's also going to um, move people and make them think. If it was timely when it came out four years ago, it seems to be even more so now. So I'm really hoping that um, people will enjoy it. And how was it seeing your characters come to life? Were they how you imagined them? It's amazing because I obviously was told when they were going to be approaching, we thought, you know, we'd approach Sienna or we thought we'd approach Rupert. (laughs) I had to stop myself squealing. Um, (laughs) And it's funny because... Sienna Miller plays the wife of this conservative MP who's played by Rupert Friend. And in the book, she's dark haired. And the character who's played by Michelle Dockery, Kate the Barrister's got dyed blonde hair. Obviously, they've switched the hair colour in. But I've never thought, oh, Sienna can't possibly be Sophie. And now when I've, I've had to recently reread the book, as I was reading it, all I could see was Sienna Miller being Sophie or Michelle Dockery being Kate. I actually think that the show improves on the book. It's really, really faithful to it. It doesn't vary that much, but it's definitely improved on it. And that's a brilliant thing to think that, you know, other people's creativity is building on what I created. And, you know, those characters now have taken on a new identity. They don't just exist in my head. I mean, as soon as the book's published or as soon as it's read by your editor, they no longer merely exist in your head. They're being interpreted by other people. And thankfully, these actors just play them impeccably. James Whitehouse is now Rupert Friend and Rupert Friend doesn't look like Quinn in Homeland in this you know he looks like a glossy Tory (laughs) so it's quite incredible you know and I I found myself sending emails and referring to them as you know James and Sophie and and Kate you know and then having to correct myself and say you know I realise you're not really (laughs) James Whitehouse but yeah it's, it's been absolutely wonderful and I don't feel precious at all about I don't think you can when you option a book you very clearly say that you're giving up your creative control as you do that having said that I was an executive producer which in my case meant that I was able to read and give notes on various different drafts of the scripts and I feel they really listened to me I think they benefited from my comments you know they didn't have to accept everything but I felt that they've really stuck to the tone 
of the book and that it's very nuanced and thought-provoking and better so yeah it was it was an entirely positive experience and also what was really lovely so I'm realizing I'm giving you a really long answer I could talk <laughs> about forever, was that they actually filmed it from beginning of November 2020 through to mid-April 21 so all throughout that sort of I think the second lockdown kicked in our kids were still you know at school weren't they but it still was feeling different for me I found the third lockdown really hard you know I had a child in GCSE year with all that uncertainty and I also have a younger child who was just into year eight but you know it had a very disrupted year seven so it was needing a lot of help and it felt very gloomy and it was winter wasn't it and it just felt we didn't have our vaccine so it felt slightly like gosh is this going to go on forever you know we continually being stuck like this and what really helped me was that every night I was getting what's called call sheets where um you get the details of what's being filmed the next day. So not only do you get the scenes and the location, but you know the detail of, you know, at 5.30 in the morning, Sienna Miller will be picked up by this taxi and she will have breakfast at this time. She'll be in makeup at that time. She'll be in costume at this time. We'll then do these scenes. We'll have lunch at three o'clock. I would look at details like, the catering truck <laughs> and where the catering truck would be and how many people they would be feeding and they would be saying things like lunch for 210 afternoon tea for 180 it was the most validating and exciting thing to know that while the whole world had closed there was all this creativity going on and all these people were being employed because of something I'd made up that was just brilliant that when I had this very very constrained little world in my house trying to help my year eight boy with animal farm or whatever we were doing at that point and rock erosion (laughs) (laughs) and failing to get on with the next book there was this flurry of activity and all this creativity that was going on and every day more scenes were being filmed and it wasn't having to fold they were still able to maintain this massive machine of filming that was brilliant it's been a completely positive experience very exciting can't wait to see it well let's hear your first choice of music now This is the theme from Succession, the TV series Succession. What a brilliant series that is, a brilliant piece of music. Why have you chosen this one? Reputation, which is my new book, and Anatomy of Scandal, I suppose, are very preoccupied with power. I don't write to music with lyrics at all, and I can't work in a coffee shop because I would just listen to other people. But I could listen to this because I think it's so evocative. It conjures up those really sort of dysfunctional power dynamics. I just got chills listening to this, actually. You know, when, I, when I've been feeling a bit sort of stuck in a book or a bit as if everything's going to be Groundhog Day, a really brisk dog walk with this blaring in my ears has really chirped me up. And as if it's sort of saying, come on, you can write strong books, you write strong characters, you can write about strong women, you're writing about women who are in jeopardy. And the music is quite dramatic and arresting, this, this opening track, certainly. I love Succession. The director of Anatomy directed one of the episodes, the episode where they go for that awful stag night. in the- oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, she's a female director and she's directed it brilliantly. So I suppose it's sort of a little bit of a connection to her. But to me, this music is a bit foreboding. It's serious, it's sombre, but, you know, it's entertaining, isn't it, the series? So I suppose it's sort of, it's a real call to action, really to get on with my writing and to feel good about my characters so that's why I like playing it and that was the theme to the tv series succession the first choice of music on bookmark today chosen by our featured guest Sarah Vaughan Sarah spent 11 years at the Guardian as a news reporter political correspondent and health correspondent her first novel The Art of Baking Blind came out in 2015 followed two years later by The Farm at the Edge of the World Her third novel, Anatomy of a Scandal, was an instant international bestseller. It was long-listed for the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award, shortlisted for the Audible Sounds of Crime Award, 
the Goodreads Juries Out Award and Richard and Judy's Best of the Decade. Her next novel, Little Disasters, was a Waterstones thriller of the month. Reputation, her fifth novel, is just out, and The Observer called it uncannily timely, dark and gripping. Well, I enjoyed it very, very much as well, Sarah. Another real page turner. It is just out. So for people who haven't read it, what's it about? Reputation is about a female Labour MP who stands trial for murder when a tabloid journalist with whom she's become entangled is found in her home. And it's really about the difficulty women face in navigating their way through public life with themes of harassment, online abuse, revenge porn and political entitlement. And it's also about the difficulties faced by teenage girls through bullying from frenemies on social media. My MP, Emma Webster, is 44, divorced, and she's got one daughter, Flora, who's 14. And while Emma is up in London, Flora sort of desperately needs her mum, really, and gets herself into um, a spot of bother, <laughs> which leads to tr- problematic things for, for Emma. Yeah, so I wanted to explore the abuse that any woman who puts her head above the parapet seems to get on social media, but also that teenage girls can experience. And you've been asked before, have you got some kind of crystal ball? Because you always seem to be writing about things that are, are happening the moment that weren't happening when you probably started the novel. More recently, we've had, of course, the murder of the MP David Amos, various other issues about revenge porn. Is this just you looking ahead and seeing what you think might be in the news? Or is this kind of your experience as a political correspondent coming into play and just having a feeling of what's under the surface? I think the latter. I mean, I don't think I'm cynical in my writing and thinking, oh, what's, you know, what's going to be in the news in three years' time? I mean, nobody can predict that, can we? So... I wrote Anatomy, if we go back to that one first of all, and sold it in September 2016, a whole year before the Harvey Weinstein allegations and the Sexminster allegations, you know, where there were details actually of um, people being groped in lifts. And for those who haven't read Anatomy, it's about a charismatic Conservative minister who's accused of raping a parliamentary researcher with whom he's had an affair in a lift in the House of Commons. So a year on when people were talking about Me Too and we were getting these details about researchers warning each other that people were handsy in taxes or you shouldn't get in a lift with certain people. And and in fact, Charlie Elphick was sent to prison for sexual assault on two women, one of whom was a parliamentary researcher. You know, I clearly knew about none of these things. I had just worked in the lobby in the early noughties I'm up to sort of 2005 I suppose I was conscious just observing power imbalances you know anybody I think who's worked in an environment where there are older more experienced more powerful men and much younger women is conscious certainly in that era that, that there is that potential for an abuse of power so that's really where that came from I it was literally just me imagining you know what would it be like if this happened and it was flukish but I think with um, Reputation, the, the inspiration for that was actually reading a news story about a Labour MP who talked about having nine locks on her front door and a panic button by her bed. And in fact, she had, I think, a panic room in her constituency office. And at the same time, the Tory MP, Anna Subri, had experienced an awful lot of online abuse for her stance on Brexit. Luciana Berger experienced extreme anti-Semitic abuse. Uh, Heidi Allen, our own, my own MP in South Cams, I discovered that someone in my village, there was a restraining order against him because of something he'd sent. And then there was somebody in her village who had posted a photograph of her house with scaffolding on it on Facebook and said something like, I've got the rope, come on, yellow gilets, let's storm it. You know, this sort of invocation to hang her, basically. 
I suppose I was just picking up on all this abuse that female MPs were experiencing. And certainly when I read this feature in the Times with this MP talking about the nine locks on her front door, I had a sort of light bulb moment. And I thought, I want to write about a female MP. I want to put her in lots of jeopardy. And I want to see what happens if she's living, you know, what must it be like to be living under that sort of extreme threat? So she's experiencing it online, anonymous letters hand delivered to her constituency, abusive texts sent to her mobile phone, she could think she's being stalked. And the more I thought about how this poor woman, you know, could experience threats in all different ways, the more I thought that she might be actually pushed to the limits of behaving in a way that she wouldn't perhaps have behaved in in, in a really calm manner. But I'm really struck, yesterday was the anniversary of um, the death of Sarah Everett. And as I was finishing writing it, there are passages where I talk about, you know, the experience of women walking down a dark road with keys splayed between your fingers as a sort of impromptu weapon. And the novel starts with my MP, Emma, is confronted by a, a constituent who's incredibly angry. And of course, as you alluded to, you know, once it was all edited and the proofs were bound and sent out to people, Sir David Amos was stabbed, you know, at his constituency surgery. So that is just a horrible, fluky coincidence. And obviously nothing I could foresee. If I could foresee it, I'd be buying lottery tickets and I wouldn't I wouldn't be staring at a computer screen, <laughs> beating myself up. But yeah, no, I, I worked as a journalist for 15 years before I wrote novels and I listened to the news all the time, spent too much time on Twitter. And I think it's just having an ear attuned to stories, you know, over more than a quarter of a century, I suppose. Do you think, I mean, we talked about Sir David Amos there, but do you think for women MPs, the threat is of a different kind, of a different nature. I do. I mean, without wanting to take away from the tragedy of Sir David, the um, parliamentary authorities have actually done research into who is more likely to experience abuse in the form of emails, because they kind of can vet that. And um, yeah, women disproportionately receive far more abuse. And a black woman like Diane Abbott receives far more abuse than anybody else. I think women in general are judged more harshly and have to do better, basically, than their, their male counterparts to succeed still, unfortunately. And any woman who dares to put her head above the parapet in public life, particularly, I think, if they seem sort of vivacious and charismatic, like Heidi Allen was, you know, relatively young as an MP, there are things for trolls to latch onto and be extra critical about. It's as if there's a disconnect. You can't possibly be, you know, an attractive, engaging woman with something to say and say something that angers people. It seems to be a bit of a red rag. There was actually an interview with Tony Blair in The Times with Andrew Billen two and a half weeks ago, in which he said he doesn't know why women would want to go into politics these days because of it. That's really sad, isn't it? It is. And it's something I particularly wanted to explore in this book, because Emma... She's gone into politics. She's only been an MP for four years. She's been a teacher who's gone into it because she wants to make a difference and she's concerned about pupils who, you know, are on the breadline. She's concerned about the proliferation of food banks. She's, you know, broadly feminist. And then she takes on a cause campaigning for an improvement on the law and revenge porn, which I was fascinated to discover is currently still seen as an offence under as a technology breach. So the law is covered by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, which might sound very pedantic, but it matters because the maximum penalty that they can give is two years, whereas if it was under the Home Office, it could be seen as a form of sexual offence, sexual abuse offence, and would have a much worse sentence. So Emma is campaigning to try and get a greater sentence and also to give automatic anonymity to the alleged victims in cases. And because she's spoken out about something like this, she speaks out about an 18-year-old constituent who hangs herself because her first boyfriend takes a video of her doing something really intimate and then posts it when she breaks up with him, posts it 
on all sorts of social media and sends it to her dad and basically this poor girl cannot deal with it and so when Emma stands up in the house and comments and talks about this she then finds that she's experiencing a level of abuse she hasn't experienced before. She's also been photographed with a guardian and she's allowed herself to be styled in such a way that she's got bright red lips and she's wearing a leather jacket and she's looking not really like herself. She's looking quite foxy. and um, <laughs> She's a bit discomforted by that. And really, that is the starting point. That is the thing that makes her cease to be just, just a backbench MP and makes her become a publicity whore in the words of some of her critics. I think you do that very well the way in which women are pulled in all these different directions to look like this but to not look too much like that to be a mother to be a boss to be an MP to be loyal to be independent all of those things are taking her in different in different ways and putting different pressures on her so anatomy Kate's 42 I think I think in little disasters the women are late 30s but here Emma is 44 and she's she feels like she's becoming sexually invisible I mean, I've loved my, I'm 49 now, I've loved my 40s. I started writing fiction at 40. So they've been really good years for me. But they are years in which you have to adjust and in which I think you're busier than you've ever been. I mean, I've just had COVID and I realised it was the first time in 17 years that I've lay in bed and got better. Whereas, you know, in the past when I've had flu, I may occasionally have gone to bed when the kids were at school, but I've been up at half two and gone down the school run and then cooked and done my other job you know they've been brilliant years but they are busy years I've got two teenagers and I've got you know a full-time job and a dog and I'm a wife and you know there are all those other demands on me and I'm not commuting up to parliament and standing and doing 16 hour days doing that so I was really interested in depicting a woman who is trying to be everything Thank you, Sarah. Well, let's stay with that theme of women being pulled in different directions and hear from Faye Bran. In 2020, Faye Bran's first novel, Tinker Taylor, School Mum Spy, won the Comedy Women in Print Unpublished Prize. It came out last year and Helen Lederer, comedian, author and founder of the Comedy Women in Print Prize, described it as naturally funny, page turning, smart and sussy. And when I met Faye, I started by asking her to tell me what the novel's about. So Tinker Tailor School Mum Spy does exactly what it says on the tin, really. It's about a 46-year-old mum of three who has been at home. She's been a stay-at-home mum for 13, 14 years, and she gets recalled to her former life as a secret agent. And she's been tasked by her old agency with spying on a dad at the school. Uh, who is suspected of illegal arms trading. So it's a kind of mum returning to work, but under quite unusual circumstances. Yes, I was going to say, uh, I mean, um, how autobiographical is this? I'm assuming you're not a spy. but (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I'd love to say yes. Um, But obviously, if I did say that, then I'd have to kill you. No, I I, um, harboured a secret desire at one point in time that I thought I would make quite a good spy and like that would be an amazing thing to do. But since I've written the book, I've told everybody that. So obviously I'd make the world's worst spy. The book really sprung out of thinking about, you know, I had a child of my own and I and I wanted to do something and go back to work. And all my peer group around me were in very similar positions. That whole thing of do you stay at home? Do you carry on with your career? How do you juggle both of them? And I think really that's where the book came out of. 
And it, it kind of nicely combines the fact that she is having to go back to work, which is, as you say, a lot of what women do and the difficulty of that when you've got young children. But also this kind of secret area of a woman's life, which is this juggling around of different roles. Yeah. And I think for Vicky, she can't tell anyone what she's doing. Part of the premise of the story is that they ask her to join the, the PTA because the wife of the baddie is on the PTA as well. She doesn't want to be involved in this stuff, but she ends up getting herself involved in bake sales and Christmas fairs and all the trappings that come with being on PTA whilst actually doing undercover spy work. A lot of the book is really, yeah, thinking about that whole hidden side, as you say, of parenting, that juggling that people don't necessarily see on the surface. And good to hear about another really positive, kick-ass, middle-aged woman. I mean, I think our time has come. There seem to be a growing amount of these sort of role models and characters, which is great. Well, I hope so. I mean, I didn't want her to be a bad spy. I wanted her to be at the top of her game. Because I think also that's a really important message to send to middle-aged women, is that we might be doing all of these other things and bringing up a family, but we're also very capable of being at the top of our game or certainly getting back to the top of our game. You know, there's still plenty of mistakes that she makes along the way, both in terms of her work, because she's been out of the game for 14 years, and in terms of her parenting and and balancing those things. But I think that's a bit human, isn't it? Because I don't think any of us are perfect. And I think we all learn by our mistakes. Oh, absolutely. And and is this part of a a new wave, do you think, of looking at motherhood in a slightly different way? You've got, uh, you know, TV comedies like Motherland and people increasingly sort of seeing the funny side, if you like, of being on with all the real side. Yeah, I think it's more real than funny. I mean, I think we're rapidly moving past a phase where we crack the jokes about it all the time. I mean, it is funny, but not all the time, like or not at the time, I should say, it's not very funny. And so I think that there is this definite movement towards a truth rather than taking the mickey out of it all the time. And truth really is funnier than trying to be funny about things. That was another thing really in writing the book was to really look at that truth in comedy. And I do or did do a lot of improvisational comedy and you find like when you're doing scene work in, in front of a live audience that the best reactions and the reactions where audience laugh more or have more empathy with what you're doing on stage are the scenes where things are true. And writing a funny book, how hard... Is that because when you're sitting in your room on your own thinking is this funny <laughs> it's making you laugh perhaps but is it funny I don't know I mean I didn't sit down one day and think I'm going to write a funny book I sat down and thought I want to write a book and then the sort of situations and things that came out of writing it amused me because I was using things situations that I'd been in in my real life and exaggerating them and coming from a comedy background really helped in terms of understanding when you're writing comedy the worst thing you can do is pile gag upon gag upon gag upon gag because actually an audience needs pathos as well and they they need a little bit of respite from funny in order to find things amusing again there's that balance that is really important when you're writing and allows you to inject some substance into the story that pacing that you talked about there how easy was that to write down? I mean, I presume when you're performing, it sort of comes naturally, but learning how to pace it in writing is a different thing. That comes in an edit. 
because once you've written your your draft, it's then part of an editing process to say, oh, it's been a bit too serious for a bit too long. We need to bring some lightness into this particular area or a story will lend itself to certain things. So obviously when there's conflict in a particular scene, you want to follow that then with something that is a little bit lighter. But by the same token, you know, once you've had your light, fluffy scene you want to then bring it back down to a more neutral truthful place that just comes in an edit when you're reading things through and thinking that isn't real I've just put a joke in there for the sake of it but nobody would actually say that or nobody would actually do that you've just got to be really honest with yourself as a comedy writer comedy is really subjective right so I'm sitting here talking and there might be people out there that go out and buy my book and they read it and they say well that that wasn't funny at all and there'll be other people that are thinking it's hysterical and it's the funniest thing they've ever read and I know that those two things are true because they've both been written on Amazon reviews when you're writing comedy you have to write it for yourself and you have to trust your instinct that if you're finding it amusing there'll be somebody else in the world (laughs) that finds it amusing as well and it might not be everybody you've got to really just set aside being funny and write the book to be the book and know that it's got that light and shade in. You've got to just trust yourself. Is it that kill your darlings moment? Oh, you've got to. to, I mean, I have dallied in writing more serious literature before now, and I think it goes double for comedy. You've just got to learn to kill it and move away. And it's hard because when you've written this nugget of something that (laughs) that is really amusing and and you know it would be really funny. But I have a whole stock of rejections from this particular book that I intend to go back to for other books as well. And how has it been being a debut author? How have you found that? It has been an amazing experience. It's also been a really intense experience. And it's also been a little bit, I don't know, disappointing at times. I won the Comedy Women in Print Prize. My prize was a book deal with HarperCollins. And I had an agent and everything, so we were already looking around for a publisher. But I think it gave me a false sense of of confidence in a way. I'd won the prize and I had amazing publicity over over that. But then everything sort of stopped and slowed down because everything takes so long in publishing to sort of wind its way through. So I think it was a full year between winning the competition and the book actually coming out. And then once it was out, we'd just come out of lockdown. So it was September 2021. So I was very fortunate because I got to have a live book launch and I had this really exciting couple of months. And then you've just realised how hard you're working and you might sell one or two books or like five or six books. It's really difficult to sort of consolidate how many hours you've put into writing the book, editing the book, promoting the book and the fact that you've got to do a lot of it by yourself as an author. You've got to be really driven and you've got to put yourself out there. On the flip side of that, what has been really wonderful is, first of all, getting to know a really supportive online community. But secondly, bookshops and people like yourselves on radio have been so unbelievably supportive and continue to be of debut authors. And that's really exciting because it can get a little bit hard sometimes when you see, I don't know, the Richard Osmonds of this world. You know, they're already famous for something else and their books just get sold out and they're on all the bestseller tables and everything and you sort of feel like but what about mine what about mine to have the support of independent bookstores but also Waterstones have been amazing as well and other mediums and just start to understand that there is an incredible amount of support out there for debut authors and and you do have to work to find it but it is there 
Yeah, it feels like somebody like Richard Osman isn't a debut author, really. I mean, no. it technically is, but it doesn't feel that way, does it? No. And if I did it all again, I'd tell my 27-year-old self to get famous for something before writing the book, because actually that would have been a lot easier in terms of promoting it. Um, yeah, as I say, it's been a really interesting and rather wonderful experience and obviously I've got a book in print which is is a massive achievement not to be sniffed at really and I think as a debut author because you're all the time looking at what everybody else is doing you lose sight of what you've actually achieved without being famous and that not everybody gets to do this. And what's next for you then? You've got all these little snippets from uh, the offcuts, yeah. as it were, from <laughs> novel one. Um, I've just finished them? another manuscript and I'll just carry on writing. I've got lots and lots of ideas. I just need the time to actually write them down and get them into a book. And Tinker Taylor's School Mum Spy by Faye Brand is published by HarperCollins. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Sarah Vaughan about her new novel, Reputation. Sarah, it's quite shocking some of the things that are said and written in the novel in terms of responses to Emma on social media. I wondered how real they were, how much you'd researched the kind of reactions and things that were said directly to female MPs. Unfortunately, you only have to go on Twitter and put in the name, not necessarily doing the handle, but, you know, the name of an outspoken female MP like Jess Phillips or Rosie Duffield, and then just see what bilge comes out, frankly. Um, So it wasn't very difficult to research. It's all there, just sort of lurking beneath the surface. I'm sure there was much nastier things that I didn't see. So I actually probably toned it down a bit because I think if you put some of the things that you saw, it wouldn't be very palatable to read it. And I interviewed MPs to research it. And one of the really shocking things I discovered was that, you know, it's very difficult to prosecute people for things they're saying and you can't prosecute them for negatives so in it somebody's saying I wouldn't I wouldn't rape her if she was the last woman alive you can't prosecute somebody for that there's nothing the police can do because he's saying he wouldn't rape her there's no rape threat in there there's a sort of negative rape threat I wouldn't rape her but it's still really unpleasant to read well let's hear your second choice of music now Sarah which is Castle on the Hill by Ed Sheeran why this one So this is a bit different, isn't it? But I think this very much taps into my experience of of writing this book during lockdown. It makes me feel deeply nostalgic, actually, for my Devon home. If I listen to it when I'm running, I just want to go and be in my teens and see my mum and and hark back to those early days, really. But I played it a lot when um, this summer my daughter had some major surgery uh, at Addenbrooke's and she was due to have another bit of surgery. And then my son had to self-isolate because his best mate had COVID and he'd been hugging him. So while we were waiting to discover, you know, if, if he'd got COVID, I was able to work my daughter away to Southwold. And I've got a very clear memory of driving quite fast across Suffolk cornfields in the sunshine with us playing this. But it's really about the importance of home and identity. And I think that, you know, something like what's happening in Ukraine at the moment makes you realise just how important home and safety is and the pandemic made me realize that as well how important my family was my parent you know your world shrinks and you realize actually what is so important and and for me so much of that is caught up with family and it sounds a bit naff but being in nature driving through Suffolk and just feeling uplifted but supported by all of that when I was six years old I broke my leg Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, wrapped up in books. 
And our feature guest on Bookmark today is Sarah Vaughan talking about her novel, Reputation. Sarah, you were talking earlier about how your character, Emma Webster, is put in jeopardy. And there is a discussion, isn't there, about in fiction putting women in jeopardy, whether that titillates the reader, because we see a lot of slasher films, that kind of thing, where the victims are always women. I'm guessing in this case, you did this to make a larger point that actually women in this situation are in jeopardy. Yeah, I don't think I could really have written it otherwise. I mean, I would say I've never killed off a woman. The novel starts with a male body at the bottom of the stairs. So I'm very clear that I'm not killing off women. However, we all know domestic violence is disproportionately inflicted on women. And in that respect, crime fiction reflects the real world. And the sad reality is that, you know, it is women who are being placed more in jeopardy. You know, it is just a Sarah Everett who's abducted or a Sabina Nessa who's killed, you know. We don't hear about men being abducted and sexually assaulted and murdered in the same way. And your MP, Emma Webster, where does she come from? She's an interesting uh, character. She's flawed, isn't she? She's got a past, but she's also very much a campaigning MP. She has a trade unionist dad who'd always sort of quizzed her about, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, so when she's a teenager and she has all these sort of write-on causes when she's a teenager, but something happens, as you say. She sort of then opts in her 20s for a sort of safer life. And she marries a husband who's perfectly pleasant and kind. And that's what she's going for, you know, and she chooses to, instead of pursuing politics, she becomes a teacher and teaches history. As she nears 40, she realises that actually she has got a voice and she wants to do something a bit more with her life. Very quickly, within six months, she realises that actually she is, she's a bit of a media star. You know, she's attractive and personable and chatty and nice to reporters and and so you know you can see that you know she's then great on telly and very quickly her marriage falls apart and she's just trying to do her best really I wanted to write somebody who was principled she hasn't been corrupted by power in any way she's a good woman but she is put in a unusual and precarious and dangerous situation and she does something that doesn't work out very well (laughs) And she's also willing to put her head above the parapet on these difficult issues because as you say, it's bad enough or hard enough being a woman in public life, but one who actually speaks out on uh, issues such as revenge porn, you are really making yourself, unfortunately, a target. So first of all, she sort of puts her head above the parapet by agreeing to be photographed with this red lipstick and leather jacket. And she sort of slightly sees from the onslaught of attack that, oh, okay, that's not really me. And it's depicted me in a way that isn't really me. And perhaps that wasn't great that I did that. When the sister of um, this woman called Freya turns up and her sister, Amy, who's the 18-year-old constituent who's, who's hanged herself, when she, she turns up and says, you know, the ex-boyfriend has sort of got a very minor suspended sentence and, you know, what's this MP going to do about it? Emma realises she's got a choice. She can either just sort of make the right noises and send a letter or she can actually choose to make this something that she campaigns on and that she really tries to alter the law on and so it's a cause that she's sort of I suppose been looking for I didn't want her not just to talk about domestic violence because I think that's something that that we're all quite conscious of I wanted to find a new angle also it really fits with something that Flora does the fact that Emma has taken on this cause of revenge porn then means that she's liable to charges of hypocrisy because she's also used her daughter in you know, when she was nine and she was campaigning to be an MP, she's used pictures of her nine-year-old daughter as part of her publicity. So she's kind of made herself fair game as far as the tabloid journalist is involved. 
Thank you, Sarah. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Let's stay actually with that uh, idea of difficult issues and hear from Stephen Gaines. When My Wife Had to Die by Brian Verity is out this month. It's his memoir of living with his wife who had Huntingdon's disease. Brian died in 2019, but I spoke to Stephen Gaines about the book and asked him to explain his connection to it. And a trigger warning here that this interview does cover the topics of assisted dying and suicide. Well, I'm the publisher of Envelope Books, but I also publish a magazine called Book Launch. Book Launch has been going for about three and a half years. Shortly after it came out, Brian Verity got in touch with the magazine about a book that he'd written some time ago, a memoir about a life experience. And he wanted to get more recognition for it. So he printed an extract from this book. It was a very painful read and a quite extraordinary read. And we then started a new publishing company. Book Launch started a company called Envelope Books. And I thought, if no one else is going to pick this up, I'm going to pick it up because it is so extraordinary. Brian Verity had been married and his marriage came to pieces and he had a breakdown. And he went into a psychiatric hospital where he was nursed back to health and he fell in love with his nurse and they got married. And after a couple of years, he noticed that she was starting to twitch in a way that worried him. And she wasn't aware of it. And as time went on, she started to slur her speech. And she wasn't aware of that either. And he was terrified by it because he could read the signs. He knew that she had a couple of brothers who had started to display symptoms of, of Huntington's disease. And he knew that her mother had died of it as well. And he realized that she'd got it. And Huntington's is a disease that you inherit from one of your parents. It's genetic. And there is no cure. I mean, all of this was about 30, nearly, I think, 40 years ago. And there was no cure then, but no one knew about it. I think people know maybe a bit more about it these days, but no one knew about it then. No one knew what the disease meant, what its prognosis was. He then had to decide how he could handle her disease and handle his own distress because he was a fragile character. And the book is about that. And is this book written as a diary, as a memoir? Is it written contemporaneously or reflections? It's a memoir, and he takes you through the process of getting to know Mary, his wife, getting to know her family, getting to know her disease, and getting to know also the various agencies that he felt ought to be able to give her some sort of help, and how one by one by one, they all failed her. They didn't understand the disease. They didn't know what she needed. They were condescending to her. They were condescending to him. In the case of his local church, for example, Mary's nephew was going to be getting married. And he felt it was essential to tell the preacher that to marry and to have children means a 50% risk of passing on this appalling gene. And he thought that the preacher should say to the couple, I strongly advise you either not to get married or not to have children. If you want to have children, then adopt. And the preacher wouldn't accept his advice. And Brian was furious with him for what he thought was not just a betrayal of trust, but a massive moral failure to grasp the very, very difficult nettle of what do you do to stop this disease being passed on? The problem with it is you probably don't know, unless you're tested, that you've got this gene until you start displaying signs of it. And you won't display signs until you're about 40. So for the whole of the first part of your life, you're going to think that you're healthy. You're going to marry, you're going to have children. And then suddenly you discover you've got signs. That means you've probably given your children the disease as well. So everybody that Brian met and everyone he talked to 
failed to grasp just how important this was. His MP, the Minister of Health, the local authorities, social services, local authorities, health services, no one got it. And he couldn't understand what it was about them that was preventing them from coming to terms with what he thought was a massive public health risk. And he became more and more crazed with anger. And this book is a very, very, I've never read anything like it before. This is a very, very angry book. He's furious with everyone. He's utterly intemperate. He shows his anger. (laughs) In publishing, there is a genre called misery memoir. Misery memoirs are books written by people about the terrible experience they've had in early life, but generally how they've survived. And there's usually a happy ending. There is no happy ending to this story. And it sounds heartbreaking. And this also covers the issue of uh, euthanasia as well, doesn't it? Because after his wife died, was he not under suspicion from the police as to Well, that's right. He and Mary had long talks about what to do. The prospect was that at some point she would be so physically and mentally incapable, because this is a long process of mental and physical deterioration, that she would have to be hospitalized and she would spend the rest of her life like a vegetable. And their decision was it would be better to commit suicide. And this is very, very difficult to talk about. And there are going to be people listening who this affects. But their decision was that suicide was the only out. He got in touch with the recently started Voluntary Euthanasia Society. And of course, they could only help up to a certain point. I mean, they themselves were coming under suspicion. And in the end, they had to decide that whatever they were going to do, it couldn't involve Brian. It had to be fully Mary's choice. And he would support her to the extent that he could without compromising himself. In the end, she went back to the doctor again and again and again, asking for sleeping pills. One weekend, they agreed that was going to be the weekend when she took the sleeping pills. And... uh, (laughs) I don't want to, um, I want to say too much about the book, but the whole plan goes terribly wrong and uh, it's not funny. It's awful. You know, I sort of almost chuckled because it is so ironic what happens. It goes wrong. Eventually she dies and the police then are on his tail for a year to see whether he was an accessory to her death. You say it's an extraordinary book. It's an extraordinary story. Mm. It's Brian, a writer. Some people can live extraordinary lives and still not manage to convey that on the page. But is he able to do that in his writing? I think it's a very strong piece of writing. But no, he's not a writer. He's just a regular chap who feels passionately about the situation that he was in and the unfairness of the situation. And he writes about it in a very straightforward way. I mean, it's obviously not a book written by a professional writer. In addition to the horror of the story, it has many other things going on, one of which is the extent of his self-revelation. Normally in a book, if it's a memoir, an autobiography, the person you're probably kindest about is yourself. Brian, I don't think that he points the finger particularly, but he is very candid about his own nastiness. And again, this is not easy. The nastiness is that he had been a fragile and needy individual. And Mary had saved him, effectively. And she was his crutch. And suddenly they get to the point in their relationship where she can't be his crutch anymore. She's not strong enough. He needs to be her crutch. It's another crisis for him. And part of the hysteria of the book is his sense of incapacity. How long can he go on supporting her the way he's needing to do and protecting her from these incompetent authorities without it having a terrible effect on him. The way he expresses this, and it's extraordinary to read, is 
he feels angry with her for ruining his life. And you read that and you think, that's just cruel, Brian. I mean, she's the life that's been ruined. You know, you're still physically intact. But he blames her for wrecking his life. He could have married anybody and he married her and he's furious with her. And he's nasty to her. Like I say, this is a very, very difficult book to read, but it tells us something very true. We want our lives to be wrapped up and cosseted and Disneyfied. And life isn't like that. Life is tough and it's unfair. And this is a book that tells the truth about how lives can be broken, both the people suffering disease and the people looking after them, and just how careless one can be to someone that one ought to be careful about, how it can destroy even one's feelings of love. Is that the takeaway message? I mean, it sounds like it covers lots of things, but is that the takeaway message? Well, the takeaway message is something needs to be done about Huntington's disease. And the other issue, of course, was that assisted dying has to be legalised. Michael Forsyth, ex-government minister, has tabled a private member's bill to call for the government to legalise assisted dying. And what about you, Stephen? This book has obviously uh, got into your head. Has it changed your views on, on anything? It's a really, really difficult question to answer. I mean, thank God I'm not involved. And I think really there are probably going to be two answers to that question. How one would feel if one was involved, if one had the disease or if one was looking after or had a close relationship with someone who had it, and how you would answer if you were completely detached. As someone who is detached, it seems to me that assisted dying ought to be legislated for. I suppose the good news or the promising news is there appears to be some gene therapy research going on in American universities that might, might just lead to something to help people with this situation. And Why My Wife Had to Die by Brian Verity is published by Envelope Books. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Sarah Vaughan about her novel Reputation, which is published by Simon and Schuster. Sarah, what's next for you? What are you up to at the moment? Oh, I hate being asked that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm working on a new novel, but I don't want to discuss it. But I think it's fair to say it's been inspired by the news. But I've also been quite involved in pitching my fourth novel, Little Disasters, and we've had scripts commissioned for a UK broadcaster. So that's been exciting to go to pitch meetings. And then Reputation, the rights to it have been bought by the sort of dream team that have made Anatomy of a Scandal. So we're very much hoping that they could work their magic on this. That's very exciting. We shall see. I think I think the odds of, you know, lots of books get optioned and I think only about one in 12 ever get made. Well, that's keeping you busy then. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, don't know whether you've got time, but what are you reading at the moment if you do have time? I reread Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies. I'm going on a podcast and I have to recommend a book that I think everybody should read. And rather than choosing a thriller, which I thought they would expect me to choose, I thought I would discuss that. It's the middle of the Mantel Thomas Cromwell trilogy. It's the most perfect depiction of a court, really, and how to be a politician and how to handle a tricky ruler. So Henry in this has basically he wants to get rid of Anne Boleyn and marry Jane Seymour in this book. We know that by the end of the book, she's going to be beheaded. So you would think there's not much suspense. It's just absolutely fascinating. The Henry that's described there is somebody who 
always wants to sort of be the good guy, you know, always wants to be having a moment of glory, doesn't want to offend people, doesn't want to have to make difficult decisions, wants the blame for those to be placed on other people. It could be a Donald Trump or, in fact, a Boris Johnson. I mean, it's just so pertinent. The third instalment, The Mirror and the Light, could, I mean, there's a plague raging through that. I mean, it's weirdly prescient. I mean, she wrote it before COVID. And the Henry in that is even more Trump-like. So I've been really reading out the bodies. I also reread Gone Girl because I know I remember all that middle twist, but I couldn't remember how it's structured. I'm really interested in keeping a tight structure with new book and I wanted to see how that worked. It was very much worth rereading, not just for the writing, which is razor sharp and the way in which it's constructed, which is so clever. And this sort of treasure hunt that Amy makes her, her husband, Nick, go through is just so clever. But there's also a speech, a cool girl speech in it, in which Amy sort of really rails against the false expectations that men place on, they all want a cool girl and, and that women comply and become this sort of girl who can eat burgers, but never puts on weight and who's prepared to do all these sort of interesting sexual things and never put her needs first. And it's this brilliant feminist diatribe, really, against male expectations. So I read those. And I also read a thriller that is coming out in April called It Ends at Midnight by Harriet Tice. I've described it a bit like The Guest Party, which was a huge bestseller by Lucy Foley, but it's much, much darker. So if you liked her first novel, Blood Orange, I think you'll like that. Oh, and I'm now reading something called Insomnia by Sarah Pinborough, because we are doing a podcast as well. Thank you for that. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show. Our featured guest is Rosie Andrews talking about her debut novel, The Leviathan. We'll also hear from Elle McNichol talking about her children's novel, Like a Charm. And DJ Taylor will be chatting about his new short story collection, Stooky Blues. But we'll sign out now, Sarah, with your last choice of music, which is all about the bass by Megan Trainer. Great track. Why this one? I just love her sort of feistiness, her sort of, I just think she's a really good role model for young girls. This song, if you listen to some of the lyrics, it's basically saying, love yourself as you are. Don't try to fit in with these stupid ideals. It's explicitly telling a young girl that the images that they see online are dangerous and, and unreal. You know, reputation is very much about the corrosive effect of social media, both on Emma, the MP, through trolling, and on Flora, her daughter, who's very much caught up in the viciousness of this world. And all about the base is basically telling young girls they shouldn't worry about that. Because you know I'm all about that, 